Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. For decades, public health and tobacco control have bludgeoned smokers with the message that smoking kills. And in order to save one's life, you really only have one choice, and that is to quit or you could die. It's a stark message often delivered with moral zealotry and a whiff of authoritarianism. But what if there is another choice, a choice that reduces harm by allowing the consumption of nicotine in a manner that is magnitude safer than smoking? Well, there is such a choice, and of course, we're talking about vaping. The potential for vaping to save lives is manifest to those in the harm reduction community who have battled so hard against the ill-fated war on drugs. Joining us today on RegWatch is one such warrior, Harry Shapiro. For over 40 years, he's fought to eradicate the harm caused by ineffective and intolerant drug policy. And for the past half decade, he's been a leading voice for tobacco harm reduction. Harry, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Yeah, it's my, my pleasure, Brent. Well, okay, well, let's get to it. Quit or die. How often have you heard that message and what's wrong with it? The, the problem with the message of quit or die is that, yeah, there will be many people who want to give up smoking or wish they wanted to give up smoking, which is probably more the case. And, and they will. And that's great because about half the people who, who smoke on a regular basis are likely to die. Trouble is, there are millions of other people who really cannot give up the nicotine. Um, and there's a quite a famous saying that people smoke for the nicotine, but sadly, they die from the tar. Um, but there is a third way. And as you say, that third way is the use of what we in the tobacco harm reduction community call safer nicotine products, which is the vaping products that most people are familiar with. There are heated tobacco products, which deliver nicotine in a slightly different way. And there's a harm reduction option that's been around for the last 200 years. And it's Swedish style uh, oral product called Snus. So that's not exactly innovative, that one. That's been around for a long time. But the clinical evidence on that now makes it clear um, that it's, it's up there in, in the safety bracket uh, with all the other products. Now, that's a product, though, that even in Europe you can't get, only in some places, because it's even been banned. Well, that's right. I mean, we have this thing called the um, Tobacco Product Directive, and the European Union, in, in what one could only call its manifest stupidity, um, decided to ban this uh, oral product, um, where it's still allowed in, in Sweden. And in fact, it was one of the conditions that Sweden could join the EU, they didn't then have to go and, and ban snus. That was one of the conditions that they laid down for entry into the European Union. And the fact is that uh, if you look at the smoking rates in Sweden, they've absolutely plummeted uh, against the rising use of snus. Sweden, amongst adult men, has got one of the lowest rates of um, smoking-related disease in the whole of the EU. Uh, and in Norway, for example, um, female cigarette smoking is down to 1%, which is pretty much the lowest anywhere in the world, yet you've got 15% of women in Norway using snus. Um, and it's got this clean bill of health right across the board for all the conditions that you would normally associate with smoking cigarettes. Provide for our viewers some color, if you will. You fought against the war on drugs for many years. What was that like? 
Oh, it's not over yet, <laughs> not by a long shot. Um, I, I think there are many different aspects to, to, to the war on drugs. And the thing that I've mainly been concerned with o- over all these years is drug harm reduction. Uh, two things, really. Drug harm reduction and actually trying to talk to journalists, politicians, doing lectures, media broadcasts and all the rest of it. To really try and dispel a lot of the myth and ignorance that there is around drugs and drug addiction, because people with the most serious problems um, are amongst the most marginalised and vilified people in society. So that's one angle. The other angle is trying to keep people safe, um, to give, in a sense, to give them the breathing space that they need in order to decide if they want to come off drugs, if they want to go into treatment services. Because essentially, you can't recover if you die. If you're dead, that's it, finished, chance is over. But with things like needle exchange, with opioid substitute therapy, methadone maintenance, all of those kinds of interventions, um, it gives people a chance to kind of decide what they want to do. And some people, you know, they want to carry on in the same way that people want to carry on using nicotine. Um, But for a lot of people, it is the beginning of their way out of a life of mayhem and chaos. So that's really my kind of angle on the drug war. So how did that experience bring you to working in tobacco harm reduction? Well, I have to thank a couple of drug colleagues for that. that. Uh, Professor Jerry Stimson and Paddy Costell, who were colleagues in the drug world for for many uh, a long time, both staunch advocates of drug harm reduction. Uh, and they came to a, a, a view that you could do a direct read across from drug harm reduction across the tobacco harm reduction, um, such that people could carry on. They could switch away from cigarettes. They could carry on using nicotine in a much safer way. Um, and then if they choose to use that as an exit ramp from nicotine altogether, then fine, that's good. Otherwise, um, you know, nicotine is a relatively benign substance and you could carry on using that in in, in relative safety. So they asked me to come along and report on one of their conferences in in 2015. And I did that for a couple of years. Um, And then they asked me to start writing a blog for Nicotine Science and Policy um, Online Digest. Uh, and then uh, in 2017, they asked me to write the first uh, of the Global State of Tobacco Harm Reduction report. Now, the genesis of that was that Jerry Stimson, when he was running uh, the International Harm Reduction Association, they produced a biennial report called the Global State of Harm Reduction, which was the intention of that report was to track progress or otherwise um, in the delivery of harm reduction interventions within drugs. And he decided that there was a, a similar argument to be made in with drug harm reduction, uh, for, sorry, for tobacco harm reduction. So we did that one in 2018 and we did the second report in, in 2020. I think there's another important point to make here when you're talking about a read across from drug to tobacco harm reduction, and the same applies to HIV harm reduction as well. 
in that all of those public health movements were bottom up. Um, the genesis of those were within the drug and HIV communities. You could see the devastation being caused um, for people who were injecting drugs uh, and getting HIV and hepatitis. And obviously within the HIV community uh, as well, um, getting HIV and AIDS. So what happened then was the, commu the relevant communities uh, began to um, distribute needles, distribute condoms and so on. And it built up from there um, because initially there was a lot from the medical establishment and the scientific establishment, there was an awful lot of resistance, including from the WHO, who believed that all you were doing here was just encouraging people to use drugs um, rather than trying to save people's lives. Um, and sadly, the way that that's mapped across the tobacco harm reduction is, is very similar. Lots of resistance from the medical and scientific establishment um, because they don't want people to use nicotine. <laughs> so you said that nicotine is relatively benign, but of course, you know, the active drugs in with, you know, heroin and so forth are not so benign. So it is the crossover then accurate? Like, I know that for some people in the, you know, regular people in the community who don't vape, my parents, for instance, is one, when I, when I bring up tobacco harm reduction, they kind of cringe because it, for them, it, it, it comes up as drug harm reduction. They think heroin, they think all that. And they're like, ah, smoking isn't the same. And they don't quite get it. And, and do you find that right. that is a similar kind of reaction? I, I think the problem is, is with the, with the use of the word addiction. Because when you talk about heroin addiction and addiction to crack or, or, or crystal meth, and then you talk about addiction to nicotine, of course, the public perception of this is that, the, that you've got this chaotic and uh, uh, very destructive lifestyle associated with, with heroin and, and crack. Um, and it kind of does this read across to, to nicotine, which of course is actually ridiculous because you wouldn't, if you were talking about caffeine addiction, um, that's probably one of my, I'd say probably one of my only vices. Um, then um, it, it's clearly nonsense to, to try and equate caffeine and nicotine addiction with heroin crack and, and all the rest of it. Um, my simple, or some would argue simplistic way of looking at it is addiction is a habit plus harm. And if you take the harm away, you're just left with a habit. So a nicotine habit, yes. A caffeine habit, yes. Nicotine addiction, not so much. I really like that. When you take away the harm, then all you're left with is the habit. That's right. Well, and I say all the time, I go, you know, because I was a smoker and I, I do vape and, you know, I have a minor nicotine habit. What's wrong with that? Mm. I mean, I think that what's rather scary in many respects is that the surveys they do amongst health professionals and doctors, a majority of them still believe that it's nicotine that actually causes all the damage in a cigarette. Um, whereas. It isn't. I mean, all the, the you light the end of a cigarette and that's 7,000 toxins you're setting fire to. About 70 odd of them are carcinogenic. And that's where you get you get the cancers, you get the respiratory problems, you get the cardiac problems as well. 
uh, emphysema, all of those kinds of things all derive from combustible tobacco products. If you don't set fire to tobacco, you've got a very different product. So how similar are, say, the opponents? So the opponents to drug harm reduction, and then there's opponents to tobacco harm reduction. How similar are they? Well, originally, as I said earlier, they were kind of, in some respects, the same. <laughs> the WHO certainly didn't have any truck with, with drug harm reduction in its very early days. But they came round to, to realizing that um, that this was uh, a, a life-saving intervention. I, I think it really comes down to, to some extent, there's a there's a kind of moral agenda at play here. I think, and that's and that's even more um, noticeable and prevalent um, amongst opponents of tobacco harm reduction. Because they they won't accept the science that demonstrates that these products are, like you say, magnitude safer than setting fire to than, than lighting up a, a, a cigarette. And I think the same the same applies really. Uh, it, it's slightly different in a way because what you're dealing with within drug harm reduction, of course, is you're also not just trying to tackle the the drug addiction bit, but you're also trying to reduce disease and the spread of disease amongst injecting drug users, HIV and hepatitis. So there was, there was, there was a communicable disease aspect to that whole enterprise, um, as well as, if you like, the, the more uh, the non-communicable dimension to that, which was the fact that people became addicted and and had to, you know, because the drugs were illegal, um, were put into a position where they were committing crimes and, and, and all the rest of it. On the nicotine side of that, of course, you don't have that chaotic lifestyle. You're just left with the, the, the recreational use of a relatively benign psychoactive substance. And that's where I feel sometimes public health begins to lose its way because everyone understands the, ver the values of public health in relationship to communicable diseases, you know, the fight against TB, malaria, smallpox, and now, of course, COVID. Um, when you start talking about non-communicable diseases, when you're actually trying to influence people's lifestyle, so that might be healthy eating, more exercise, and all of that kind of stuff, again, the uh, intentions are entirely honourable, <laughs> but it can morph itself into a, a more of a kind of ideological moral viewpoint along the lines of, you know, we don't like what you're doing. <laughs> um, and because we don't like what you're doing, we're going to put every obstacle in the way to try and make it happen. Now, it doesn't happen with, with exercise and food and all the rest of it, but it absolutely is happening in the realm of tobacco control and every effort is being made to prevent people, particularly in poorer countries, accessing potentially life-saving or at least life-changing nicotine products. So let me ask you this. We don't ask, actually ask this question enough. What is tobacco control and who are the tobacco controllers? Well, tobacco control 
at an international level um, is the WHO, um, is the uh, all the member states who signed up to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, um, and at a national level, of course, it's it's health ministries, uh, and for example, in America, it, it, it the FDA and the CDC and their their equivalents around the world. I mean, in England, we've got Public Health England, Department of Health. So it's health ministries, and then there's a kind of overarching um, control dimension at an international level, as well as, and this is an important element in all of this, the anti-tobacco NGOs. Um, and they do hold quite a lot of sway at an international level as well as a national level, particularly in America. Um, and they're, they're quite influential globally, not just in America. Now, forgive me, but tobacco control sounds an awful lot like pest control. I, I can't think <laughs> of anything else that the government is controlling like that, that there's this ubiquitous name except for like pest control. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I mean, they don't, there isn't, as far as I'm concerned, a w, as far as I'm aware, a WHO alcohol control strategy <laughs> um, or a gambling control strategy. There is a drug control strategy, of course. Um, but but no, I, it, it, I mean, I think what's important to say here is that, that as far as the people within the tobacco harm reduction community are concerned, and actually, maybe I should just speak personally. This is my personal view. I, personally, I've got no problem with you can't smoke on public transport. You can't smoke in restaurants. Um, I mean, when they stopped smoking on the London Underground, you know, I was as, as pleased as anyone. You know, you shouldn't be advertising dangerous products for kids. Um, you know, either it's advertising on the television or sports sponsorship or all the rest of it. Personally, I don't actually have a real problem with all of that. The bigger problem, though, of course, is it's not enough. Um, there is this WHO strategy, which in a sense kind of, I mentioned the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and, and the WHO got a strategy which kind of weaponizes that, and it's called M-Power, um, the M-P-O-W-E-R. Uh, and all the letters stand for something. So it's about legislation, tax regulation, taxation. Um, but the O bit of Empower stands for offering help. And the problem with that one, by the WHO's own admission, is the weakest bit and the least, uh, the least successful of that whole empower strategy and that's the it's the o that's actually going to help deal with the smoking epidemic that we are currently suffering from we've got six million people dying every year and the who's own estimate of a billion deaths by the end of this century and that's an estimate that hasn't changed um through pretty much the last you know five or ten years i mean that's a long-standing estimate and I've got a slide up here right now, um, Harry, responsible use of ENDS, which is electronic nicotine delivery systems, could save the lives of 3.1 million to 22.8 million current smokers. Yeah. So there you go. So there is the, the, the fact is that the, the strategy that's designed to deal with the smoking epidemic 
isn't enough. Uh, it isn't working enough. So therefore, that's why we say quit or die is not good enough. There is a third way. There didn't used to be a third way. You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was no third way. But now there is. The science and the technology has developed to a point where there is a whole generation of new nicotine products that people can use and enjoy and consume nicotine um, without any obvious detrimental effect. Which leads me to point out that one of the, what I call the get out of jail free cards that are played by those who are opposed to tobacco harm reduction is this thing called the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle, which I think was first conceived in German law and then has become taken up by the EU and others, is essentially it says you've got to be careful when you've got a, a new innovation that is potentially harmful. It doesn't mean to say you ban everything, but, but you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to be careful. Right, okay. Now, what's happened within tobacco control is they've now said, well, because we don't know all the long-term effects of all these new products, we can't possibly recommend that they're used to help people switch away from cigarettes. And being topical on the matter. <laughs> sure. And I know where you're going now. Yeah, you know where I'm going. Imagine the global outcry if the WHO said, look, we've got all the we've got these vaccines now, and there are new vaccines being developed all over the world. We don't know what the long-term effects of all these vaccines are going to be. Are they effective? Will you still be able to transmit the virus? Will it kill you? We, we don't know. We really don't know. So the best thing to do is nobody gets vaccinated until we spent the next 10, 15, 20 years working out if they're safe. Now, clearly, absolutely ridiculous and politically impossible for that to happen, given the state we're in. But that's essentially what the WHO and their anti-tobacco harm reduction allies are saying. They, they will not accept there is one absolutely undeniable scientific and clinical um, fact. It's a fact. It's not fake news. It's not alternative news. It's a fact. And the fact is, if you do not burn tobacco, if you do not set light to a cigarette, you have got a, you've got a product that is immeasurably safer. Public Health England reckon at least 95%. On that basis alone, governments and the WHO and others should not be telling governments that they should ban these products. It gets to ridiculous, ridiculous lengths because particularly in the poorer countries, which have got 80% of the world's smokers live in poorer countries, lower middle income countries. So they're taking the brunt of this epidemic in terms of mortality and disease. And to be clear, you're talking about the epidemic of smoking. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, not COVID. They, um, and those governments are being encouraged not to examine the evidence and come to their own conclusion. 
They're being actively encouraged by Western NGOs and others just to ban everything. Just just don't don't bother yourself because the problem for those countries is that health infrastructures are not particularly robust, not particularly well developed in many of those countries where they are trying to deal with a whole range of very serious communicable diseases. So don't worry about don't worry about all this tobacco. Don't, don't worry about e-cigarettes and you know just ban them and every you know we, they, you'll sort that. Okay, no worries. Which is patronising in extremists and quite colonial, really in its in its in its outlook. It's also a get out of jail free card for these countries because they can just turn around and say, oh look, WHO say these things are awful and terrible. So therefore, we can just go ahead and ban and forget about it. The tragedy, of course, is that those countries are also the countries that are experiencing the largest population growth. So that billion by the end of the century estimate for the number of people who are likely to die could, A, turn out to be an underestimate, plus the fact, of course, that there is a feeling amongst that tobacco control community that they are somehow going to cause serious damage to the multinational tobacco companies by banning these products, which is delusional. There's no other word for it. Because in terms of the value of sales for those big tobacco companies, these safer products are single-digit value, three, four, Five percent, if if that of the total value of their sales. So by banning these products instead of encouraging people, they're just handing they're handing the the silver platter back to the big tobacco companies that in those very same countries are the largest state-owned tobacco countries companies in the world, in India, in China, in Indonesia. Who I suspect would did divide would would argue, maybe privately or even publicly, I don't know, that having these new products around is really not in their ultimately in their commercial interest. There's an awful lot at play here, which explains why it's such a struggle to get these products readily available in so many countries. So let's backtrack a bit on big tobacco, and and that'll lead us into more discussion regarding the big state actors, because I do, I want to talk about big, and there's more than just big tobacco. And for a long time, it seems that tobacco control has painted big tobacco's historical malfeasance with the aims of those of tobacco harm reduction. Does that make some sense? Oh, yes. Oh, very much so. Um, I mean... Obviously, it's, it, it comes as no surprise that people are suspicious of anything that big tobacco gets involved in, because like you say, they've got a horrific history of, you know, frankly, lying to, to, to the general public, of getting dodgy science into peer-reviewed journals and all the rest of it. Um, but the, the issue now is, of course, they are, of course they're involved in this. Um, it's, it, they're trying to avoid what's known as the Kodak moment. And the Kodak moment is when the, count, the camera company, Kodak, never thought that digital photography would ever take off and were way behind the curve uh, when, when it came along. 
So no company wants to be kind of caught out. Um, but we've got to a point now where tobacco control element, elements of tobacco control are being absolutely obsessed that this whole thing is a big tobacco conspiracy to uh, addict teenagers in the light of falling tobacco and cigarette sales. Largely a US phenomenon. Um, that's where most of this kind of propaganda and rhetoric derives from. Um, that, that this is a big tobacco conspiracy. When in fact, um, if you look at kind of the global market for these products, the tobacco companies or the big tobacco companies have probably got less than about 20% market share. Most of the companies involved in this across the world, the liquid manufacturers and device manufacturers and all the rest of it are, are small independent companies. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of wrong on a number of levels. But um, what I find interesting about this is that it's a way of swerving around the science. So you don't have to engage in dialogue with people that you disagree with and try and, you know, try and find some common cause, try and build bridges, do any of that stuff. Um, a good example is the, the, the this one conference called the Global Forum on Nicotine. And I know that the organisers have in the past invited people who have very different views about this to come and debate the issues, and they won't. And the reason that they won't is because there will be tobacco executives, tobacco industry executives in the audience, and um, which kind of leads me on to talk about this arcane, uh, arcane provision in the framework convention called Article 5.3, which sounds very nerdy uh, and, and, you know, what the hell is that all about? Article 4.3 says, and it's part of the framework convention, there you go. Now that, that is absolutely fine, that you don't allow industry to influence your public health policies. Haven't got really a problem with that at all. But sitting underneath that are the guidelines to Article 5.3. And what they say in some length, lengthy detail is that you cannot have anything to do with the tobacco industry in any way, shape or form. Um, and that has been, that overinterprets the actual article. The guidelines themselves have been overinterpreted such that people have been banned from attending, from speaking at conferences. Um, they've been banned from even attending conferences. There are journals that won't accept their papers um, on the grounds of, well, they find some fairly spurious grounds. I mean, in one instance, I think they managed to trace back that an author had. Um, you know, in 1990-something, had, had undertaken some research that part, was part-funded by a tobacco company. It gets even more ridiculous than this. This is to my favourite. To use an American uh, uh, kind of analogy, it's almost McCarthyism in tobacco oh, control. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but my favourite example was uh, an organisation, an NGO in Southeast Asia somewhere, and they ran a poster competition for young people, right? Post an anti 
tobacco harm reduction competition for young people. And there was a long list of um, terms and conditions uh, and a whole long list of people who couldn't take part. And these kids had to demonstrate that they, their families had no connection with the tobacco industry, going back to their great grandfather. Now, if that's not paranoia, I really don't know what is. Um, but it's become, a, it's become a fetish, really, as far as I can see. Ooh, a fetish. Uh, I really like that description, a fetish. It's become a fetishized, you know. Uh, and I've heard, I've sat with people, um, researchers, somebody who said to me a couple of years ago at a conference, I couldn't even sit down with a tobacco industry representative. Uh, and accept a coffee from them because if I did and it got back to my professor, goodbye career. And and it's it's ser- it has actually serious. The environment is getting ever more toxic. People are being named and shamed in peer-reviewed journals, which should never ever be allowed and is is a disgrace. And some articles have been retracted on that basis. Others, not. Um, you know, it, it, it has got completely out of hand, which is why um, your program title, <laughs> Tobacco Control Out of Control, I think is, is totally apposite, um, given where we are at the moment. Harry, you said toxic environment. I mean, how do we really understand that? How do we make the viewer and the public understand what this kind of toxic environment that is that you're describing we're talking about ostracization. We're talking about cancel culture of researchers, of scientists who are doing science that could be considered to be on side of tobacco harm reduction, or at least even any science is just looking to explore the issue. Is that correct? I think so. And I think what, what I mean, uh, it is very much linked, like I said, to this, this obsession with, with big tobacco. Um, and I have, I've had another example that I can share with you. Um, the year before last, I was invited to a, um, a harm reduction seminar in Portugal. Now, Portugal, if, if, if your viewers don't know, um, I've got quite a progressive approach to the drug policy. Um, and this meeting was being held in the Portuguese equivalent of the US FDA was quite high powered. Um, directors of public health and drug control policy were, were going to be in the room, various academics and clinicians. And the whole thing wasn't about tobacco harm reduction. It was, it was about harm reduction generally uh, within public health. Um, but there was going to be a, a slot, a segment for some, for some discussion about tobacco harm reduction. And I was invited to go and speak about um, the previous global state of harm reduction report that, that I had written. Um, and a very well-known and respected clinician from London was also invited to speak. And we were going to travel together from, from Heathrow. And I was sitting on the plane uh, and he hadn't turned up. And then there was a, uh, an announcement came over the tannoy saying, will um, Dr. So-and-so uh, please report to, to or make himself known to cabin staff because he wasn't there. Just before that announcement came on, I got a text from the guy to say, I've been told I can't go. And what that meant was 
that, that his boss had told him he could not attend and speak at this event. Reason? There was going to be uh, a tobacco industry representative present. And I think they may have provided some tea and biscuits. <laughs> Basically, this was not an industry-sponsored event. My own view would be, so what if it was? Um, because, you know, I can't see what the problem is. I really can't. And it, this whole business about... Um, I don't I don't quite understand, and this is genuine, I don't quite understand what these WHO and all these people think is going to happen if you get in a room with some tobacco. Rep- Are they so weak-willed that, they, that they're going to resist all, te- you know? I mean, for example, um, the big energy, big oil, uh, they, they're, they're at the table of climate change conferences, you know, you have to regard these people, despite, I mean, you know, you don't get the, the oil companies have been the, some of the world's worst polluters, but, but they are seen as part of the solution, even if they have been, and still are to a large extent, part of the problem. And so similarly, um, there should be uh, platforms and vehicles a dialogue because you know the tobacco companies and like I say many smaller companies have come up with a way of helping to take the sting out of the smoking epidemic. So you mentioned big oil and there are other bigs that are involved here. One of them you mentioned which is big state actors and so let's take a look here nearly 50 percent of the global combustible cigarette market is controlled by governments that claim commitment to the World Health Organization Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which aims to reduce smoking. So 50% of the entire global cigarette market is run by state actors. And you know, what's your take on that? Are they getting uh, pushed off of the table too as well? <sighs> no. <laughs> I mean, the point is that... <laughs> There's a biannual biannual meeting of what they call the Conference of the Parties, COP. And the Conference of the Parties is a meeting of those uh, member states who've uh, ratified the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. You can also go if you're a signatory. You don't actually have to have ratified. So the Americans go to this conference, even though they haven't actually ratified it, because Americans traditionally are not really that keen on international treaties. They don't really want to be committed to anything that, that's out of their control. But, I mean, that's a whole whole other conversation. Uh, but you are, those, those are basically closed meetings. So they, the only NGOs that are allowed in there are the NGOs that belong to the Framework Convention Alliance. And the Framework Convention Alliance is an alliance of NGOs who all agree um, with the, with the whole of tobacco control policy and are by and large um, anti-tobacco harm reduction. So they're allowed in. Um, very few other people get to see those um, deliberations. And normally what happens is after the, um, the conferences are opened and some of the little preliminaries happen, they then clear the public gallery. So they don't even allow journalists in, let alone anyone else. Um, and who sits around those t- around that table? All those countries 
that you just listed as having um, large scale in country state run tobacco companies. And let's take a look at specifically at some of these countries here. Uh, the biggest ones are, correct me if I'm wrong, China and India, even Japan um, is pretty high up there. Explain what we're seeing here. Well, what you're seeing by and large um, are some very poor countries with very high rates of smoking, having their tobacco consumption controlled by the state. And some of those, if you look at that, you've got State-owned tobacco companies, 100% in some of those countries, um, like China, for example. But it means that you've got huge conflict of interest is what you've got between presumably, you know, the finance department, the treasuries, the business ministries, those, can, those um, involved in collecting taxation and export and all the rest of it. Um, in a conflict of interest with the health ministries and and by and large health ministries politically in most countries tend to be amongst the most amongst weaker the weaker elements of um any government they seem to wield the least amount of power which might explain at least partly what's going on here with the fctc and cop because it's the health ministries that are attending and it's, it almost feels, and I've only just thought of this sitting here, it almost feels like they're getting revenge for not being able to, to cope with their own domestic tobacco industry by taking a massive swipe at, you know, anyone and everyone associated with, what, what, you know, the, the, the evil multinationals, when in fact, for some of those countries, um, the problem is really on their own doorstep. But if it's about uh, so if it's about association, though, right? Because that's what you were describing. You know, somebody who may yeah. have had affiliation with with big tobacco. So is China? Does the WHO say China? You can't come to the table. India, you can't come to the table. Tunisia, you no. can't come to the table no. because your government owns the tobacco company. So your health ministry no. can't attend. The glaring, I mean, the hypocrisy of all of this is just mind boggling. You know, <laughs> it, it it just. It's almost beyond parody, really, that you can have Article 5.3 and you're not allowed to mix with tobacco companies and you mustn't allow them to dictate. Can you imagine that in those countries where you've got powerful tobacco company interests, that they're not influencing that country's domestic tobacco control health policies? I, I can't believe that isn't going on. Um, if the so, WHO and tobacco control were serious, they would say that if you're a country that is earning tax revenue off of cigarette smoking, you can't come to the table because you're in, biz you're in the business of selling cigarettes. You would think. You would think. But, you know, it, it and obviously, you know, it, it, and it, this gets well beyond my, you know, level of expertise. But when you're talking about international diplomacy, and, you know, um, it, the interdependence of countries when it comes to all kinds of things, international trade, security, all kinds of elements. I'm sure everything's in play here. Um, you know, the, 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 the tobacco control is the veneer, but underneath it, I'm sure there's a whole, you know, 
shark infested sea of international politics, geopolitics, diplomacies and all the rest of it that, that get us where we've got in this in this arena. And then let me bring up uh, another one of the bigs. So there's big tobacco, big oil. We've talked about we've talked about um, big state actors. Now we also have big philanthropy. And of course, there's old Bloomberg here. Fill us in on your aspect on that as I just jump over there right now. Here we go. Yeah. Okay. So um, I wrote about this in in the the most recent global state. Um, Bloomberg has, I mean, the two big philanthropic uh, actors in all of this. Bloomberg's the main one, and and Bill and I can't remember Bill and Melinda. Melinda, yeah, is kind of a second string in this. Now the Gateses have mainly concerned themselves with communicable diseases, Um, but Bloomberg. has got himself uh, involved because he was mayor of New York back in the day, mm-hmm. and he had a, a health head of health. Can't remember his exact title, but a guy called Tom Frieden, who had quite a lot of experience um, abroad dealing with communicable diseases, was offered a powerful job in New York and said, "Okay, I'll take this job, um, but we got to get." smoking under control in New York City. And they, they pretty much pulled that off in terms of, you know, smoking bans in restaurants and all the things that are fairly commonplace now in many countries, but back then weren't. And we're talking sometime in the 90s. And I think there was a feeling that that, in almost a kind of neocon kind of way, was um, they thought they could export this idea uh, around the world um, and over time and don't forget at this point there were no e-cigarettes there were no heated tobacco products initially this was all about trying to deal with the smoking epidemic over time they began to fund uh, american ngos uh, and those American NGOs were given a remit to uh, carry on their uh, anti-tobacco activities abroad. Um, and money found its way to a number of organisations uh, in uh, Asia, in the Far East and, and elsewhere. Um, and then, uh, of course, we, you know, from about 2006, 2007, the first, uh, vaping products came on the market and over time um, and certainly within the last few years it would seem that the enormous amounts of money that are coming out of, of Bloomberg and to a lesser extent Gates but mainly Bloomberg which was originally aimed at very specifically at trying to tackle smoking has somehow morphed itself, uh, at least from a public presentation point of view, has morphed itself into campaigns against tobacco harm reduction. Um, And that's certainly what's been happening in Asia, in the Far East and in Australia and various other countries. Not not all of it Bloomberg funded, but but a lot of it. It is quite a kind of 
I tried to draw a map of all of this in 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 the in the report that a fairly kind of tangled web of alliances and partnership uh, and grantees, uh, all of which kind of all roads tend to lead back to to Bloomberg, has been essentially funding anti-tobacco harm reduction activity. Oh yeah, well I mean he's put hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, famously the 160 million just recently, but it's way more than that. Of course, you know, the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is got a major role uh to play in uh they've got their Institute for Global Tobacco Control. And so, you know, this his efforts are funded here too as well. So, in the amount of money, the amount of money Bloomberg has put into tobacco control is in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It is. It is. But unfortunately, like I say, um, well, I mean, first you've got to ask, you know, exactly how well has that money been spent and how effective has it been in, in controlling tobacco? And the answer might be, well, not too much. Um, but I think more invidious uh, is the amount of effort and money that's been put into, uh, like I say, attacks on tobacco harm reduction as, as an idea um, and against people who uh, who advocate this either from a consumer point of view or from a clinical research or academic point of view or an activist point of view. Um, and, and that's really what is quite disturbing. And maybe this goes on in other public health realms. I wouldn't know. Um, but it does, it, it is pretty vicious. Uh, and obviously, you, you know, you've got social media now, which kind of amplifies a lot of what's going on. Vicious, insidious. These are strong words. Uh, well, yes. I mean, you know, um, there was there was a, a, a you know, it, what's happened, as I say, of course, is that the idea of the big tobacco conspiracy and tobacco harm reduction has been completely conflated. So it's very hard for people to um, be involved in this work without running the risk of being accused of being a big tobacco stooge. Because if you're advocating for tobacco harm reduction, you are um, de jure, I think is the right expression, uh, you're acting on behalf of big tobacco who are trying to boost their profit um, through the sale of, of all these products because they're losing money hand over fist because of tobacco sales are falling. It's all nonsense. <laughs> you know, the, the tobacco companies are still making huge profits from selling cigarettes. And the more legislation and regulation and control and prohibition is being dumped on the attempt to make these products more available, uh, the safe and nicotine product. You know, my, my fear really is that in terms of product development, in terms of making these products even more acceptable and affordable um, and appropriate for all the different sorts of people who need to be using them, most of that R&D that makes those products that develops that product, that funds that product development, will come from the larger companies. And if they, 
if these attempts to force these products out of the market are successful, then my concern will be that the tobacco companies will just shrug their shoulders and the investors and the boards will say, what the hell are we messing about with this for? You know, this is way too much trouble than it's worth. We'll just carry on selling cigarettes when, you know, we've got dollar bills hanging out of our socks. Why, why, should, why should we bother with this? And so that would be the concern, that, that the idea that you're going to kill off the tobacco industry by banning these products is, is a delusion, and it's, and it's likely to have tragic consequences. Well, and to the point of our, our title here for the episode, is it, if it's delusional, is it also dangerous? Well, it, it's dangerous if your tobacco control policy to stem the tobacco epidemic, smoking epidemic, is not working in the way that you want it to work. In other words, the numbers of smokers are going up. If that's not working, but you're not prepared to accept the fact that there are products out there that will help reduce the death toll and will help reduce uh, morbidity, disease, and you're turning around and saying, no, we, we don't accept these products at all. We're not having anything to do with them. We want people just to ban them. Um, it's quit or die. Or, let's be fair, there are also nicotine replacement therapies and medical pharma treatments, which, yes, they do work for a few people, for some people. But all the research I've seen shows that people are much more likely move away from smoking by switching to vaping products than by using nicotine replacement treatments. They're just not as effective. They do not replicate the smoking experience because there's, there's, there's more to this whole issue than just the nicotine. There is quite a lot of kind of behavioral science around you know, the, if you might call the whole architecture of, of smoking a cigarette, you know, the social aspect of it, the feel in your hands. Yeah, there's all sorts of dimensions to this, which is not simply, you know, having a, a whack of nicotine to the brain, um, none of which is replicated with nicotine replacement therapy. Plus the fact, of course, that you're medicalizing a problem. And most smokers don't feel that they are ill because they are smoking. They may well get ill because they're smoking, but they don't feel that the act of smoking itself is a disease that needs to be treated. So therefore, you need this behavioural nudge in a way. You need to try and get people to switch away from that which is causing the most damage. People will quit. You know, I don't know what the percentage figures are, but you know, there are many millions of people, I'm sure, who have just quit. You know, I did. Years ago, my father did, he did, just stopped. Didn't need anything, any help, you know. Maybe we had a few more Mars bars than we probably should have done. But but on the other hand, you know, Mars, sorry, English. Yeah, no, that's what we, we've got that. We understand that. But I'm really happy you brought this, this up, Harry, because I do believe that there's a, a bit of an impediment for tobacco harm reduction because there is millions of people out there who have successfully quit on their own without vaping, without any of that stuff. They just kind of bit the yeah. bullet and they quit. And so yeah. does that undermine the tobacco harm reduction argument? No, not at all. 
because there are still millions of people who can't quit, who don't want to quit because they enjoy nicotine or they can't function properly without it. You know, they can't focus on their work. They can't, you know, get up in the morning <laughs> until they've had that that first that first cigarette. Um, you know, so you've only got to look at, at, at the figures and the estimate for rising numbers of, of deaths and numbers of smokers and all the rest of it. And I'd emphasise what's going on in the poorer countries because, of course, the smoking rates have been coming down in 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 the West, in 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 um, in the richer countries. But even there, the graphs are beginning to level out. There's been quite precipitous falls in smoking rates in the last few decades. But th those graphs, for example, in Australia, are beginning to level out. And when they level out, that still leaves you with millions of people who, for whatever reason, do not want to give up the nicotine. And what are you going to do for them? Well, and what's going to happen to them is likely their health is well, going to deteriorate and they could die. Well, that's right. And then you've got, you know, you, you've got loss of earnings, loss of tax revenue. You know, um, these people are going to need health care. You know, there's, and I think there's, there's it's a point I made, uh, I made uh, earlier that, that what's happened within tobacco harm reduction and the development of these products is the whole movement has actually had nothing to do with public health. It's been a it's been a bottom up, you know, people back in two thousand six, seven, eight, um, getting hold of these products being made by small companies, spreading the word through through internet chat rooms and all the rest of it. Um, small vaping shops open up. Um, so you've you've got a a potentially powerful public health intervention that's actually not going to cost government much, if any money at all. Now, I can't think of a public health intervention that is almost cost-free to a government. You know, all your vaccination programs, whatever it is you do in public health, is going to cost you money. But if you just let... Now, these products have to be controlled. Don't get me wrong here. Um, everyone who works in the vaping and product development industry wants consumers to have access to safe products. You know, nobody wants devices blowing up in people's faces or, or whatever. And there are various safety codes um, nationally and internationally that deal with general product safety. Um, but beyond that, these products should be made available to people. And yes, you know, you put in the all the other sort of tobacco control safeguards, like you're not allowed to advertise to kids and, and, and all of that. But for example, in the because of the EU tobacco product directive, right? You're not allowed to advertise the potential health benefit of these products. What that means is that a tobacco company cannot put a notice inside their own product suggesting to the person who opens that packet that, hey, maybe you should think about switching to a vaping product because that's a lot safer than what you're just about to do. Now, they're not allowed to do that. Um, one sort of little sort of, you know, spark of, of good news here is that the, the FDA in America 
has now allowed one heated tobacco product uh, and an oral tobacco product to promote the fact that, that they are uh, reduced risk in comparison to tobacco. In my opinion, that's good. I think that we should allow big tobacco to uh, seek some redemption in the marketplace by producing safer products. It seems though, however, that tobacco controllers, public health, they don't want to allow even a sliver of redemption to go towards big tobacco's way. It's really a moral issue for them. My last question for you, Harry, is at what point does a public health intervention turn from moral to immoral? Well, I suppose I would frame it slightly differently. I would agree with you, I suppose. But yes, I think what's happened, though, is that public health should not really have a moral dimension to it in the first place. Uh, and I'm reminded of a paper that the WHO produced for one of these COP meetings about what they call ENDS, Electronic Nicotine Delivery Systems. And in that paper, 2015 or 16, I can't remember the precise date, it said about nicotine that nicotine use of nicotine is acceptable in medicinal products, in other words, NRT, but is not acceptable for recreational use. So they made it quite clear that it doesn't matter to the WHO and others if these products are non-combustible, that they don't release all these toxins. The fact that they still contain nicotine is reason enough, as far as they're concerned, to have them as you know, unavailable as possible. Now, that's a, from my point of view, that's a moral position that they've taken and does not sit easy with the international public health conventions and treaties that WHO themselves have signed up to and even devised, whereby people, and these, that's what these treaties say, first of all, nobody left behind. And what they're doing is leaving behind all those smokers who can't quit. And these treaties also make it clear that citizens should be empowered to have control over their own health. And if you're doing your utmost to prevent people accessing safer nicotine products because you don't agree with them, then you are not empowering people to take control of their own public health. And that in terms of safer nicotine product is scientifically and indefensible. And morally indefensible. Man, that's a better way to put it than immoral, I guess. Harry, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, that's it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com that's support.regulatorwatch.com and consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy, just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.